0: You're listening to the Fantasy Sports Radio Network.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, 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 gentlemen. you are now listening listening to to the
0: Fantasy fantasy Baseball baseball Hour with Al Nakiwa. Yeah, happy Monday, everybody. You are listening to the Fancy Baseball Hour with Al Melchior. And uh, already week two, if you're playing in a league that rolls that way, week two is underway. We've got a, a few uh, early games, three actually. Uh, we've got the uh, Twins, the Pirates. we got the Tigers and Royals and uh, Cardinals and Brewers all going in a, a whole bunch of games later on. So I'll be checking in on the weather and on the lineups that are coming up. Uh, I don't think we have any of the lineups for the later games yet, but uh, that won't stop me from checking on and passing on whatever interesting changes there might be there. But this is going to be a great show, folks, Uh, not only because I'm going to recap a lot of the action from the weekend and get you up to date on all the latest news and roster moves. But uh, I've got on a super, super guest today. Uh, Russell Carlton, you may know him from Baseball Prospectus. You should know him from the book uh, that's called The Shift that just uh, was recently published. If you haven't, go out, read it. It's it's wonderful. Uh, and uh, I'm going to have the pleasure of talking to Russell Carlton uh, here on the show uh, for a whole segment little bit later on so I can't wait for that that's uh, gonna be very cool but uh, to ensure that I've got plenty of time to talk to Russell about his book and all, all sorts of things related to baseball fantasy and otherwise uh, let's get right to right to the news a couple of postponements today Yankees and the Rays uh, which is supposed to be Yankee Stadium the Mets in Philadelphia lots of snow there in the Northeast Uh So all kinds of pictures on social media of uh, like the Mets players making snowmen and stuff. Uh, No baseball, though, for those four teams. So the implications, Chris Archer moved up uh, to Tuesday's game uh, was originally supposed to be uh, Austin Pruitt, I believe. Uh, So that could line up Archer for two starts potentially this week. Now, again, I don't know, you know, with the Rays, they're doing their bullpen days. Uh, they don't really seem to have a set rotation as of yet. So uh, I wouldn't necessarily count on that. Plus, uh, you you, know, you may have a weekly lineup lock situation where you can't do anything about it. But if you can, just bear in mind, Chris Archer might be able to make two starts this week. Uh, Jordan Montgomery is going to get pushed back. He was supposed to start today. Uh, he will get moved back uh, to Tuesday now for the Yankees. For that Phillies Mets game, uh, that's not uh, they don't have an open day tomorrow like the Yankees and Rays did, so uh, that's going to be made up. Excuse me, as part of a doubleheader on July 9th. and so that means that uh, they have to reconfigure their rotation. So both the of the projected starters for today or the scheduled stars, I should say. Uh, ben Lively and Matt Harvey, they're going to get pushed back to Tuesday tomorrow. And the wonderful thing about that, uh, hashtag sarcasm, is that it ruins potential two start weeks for both of them. Now it does doesn't completely put it out of play. I think it's it's I, I would think it's very unlikely for Ben Lively now to make two starts. And of course, not that I picked him up in several leagues. For the purpose of those two starts, that's not your problem, but, uh, Jake Arietta is scheduled to start on Sunday. So unless the Phillies are willing to push him back to next week, I think it's going to be, uh, Ben lively that has to wait. Doesn't that seem like a more likely scenario to you that they would push Ben lively back an extra day or two rather than make Jake Arietta wait, uh, extra time to make his season debut. Doesn't really make sense, but Matt Harvey, I guess could still be in the running to start uh, on Sunday at the Nationals. But, uh, he's got, like I said, he's got a pitch tomorrow. Seth Lugo is going to be skipped. So that rest of that rotation is going to remain in place. You're going to have Noah Syndergaard on Wednesday, uh, which will be the, the last game of that Philly series. And then they move on to uh, D.C. And you're going to have uh, DeGrom on Wednesday, a day off Thursday. And Stephen Matz on Saturday, Or I may have said this all wrong. DeGrom on Thursday, a day off Friday and then Steven Mats on Saturday. So then I think you would have either Harvey or Lugo on Sunday. I would guess that would depend on whether or not Lugo is going to be used out of the bullpen or something like that. So that two-star week for Harvey seems like there might be a chance there. Uh, some injury news, uh, the big injury news uh, over the weekend. De Shields has a broken hammock bone in his left hand. Yet another hammock bone injury this season. Just kind of weird, but uh, very, very bad news there for Delano DeShields. Probably going to have surgery, according to the Dallas Morning News. Uh, He's been placed on the 10-day DL, and he's going to be out for at least four weeks, probably between four and six weeks. Rangers aren't planning on making any moves to fill that center field vacancy Uh, the original plan there was you you have DeShields in the center and then something of a timeshare between Drew Robinson and Ryan Rua with Rua expected to get most of the playing time in left field. Uh, Now I think you're you're just going to see more playing time for Rua and Robinson, although we did see Carlos Tochi start this weekend, the Rule 5 pick who stole, I think it was eight bases in spring training. So that's something to keep an eye on because I, I wouldn't expect Tochi to play more than maybe once or twice a week, but if you need steals in a super deep league, you know, the, maybe there's an opportunity for, for Tochi to help there. Scott Schepler was scratched uh, earlier today from the Reds lineup. Uh, so uh, they were able to get in their uh, the rest of that rotation of uh, Hamilton, Winker, and uh, Adam Duvall. I believe it was Adam Duvall who was initially out of that lineup uh, against the Cubs. Uh, but uh, in fact, let me just take a quick look at that right there. But, uh, yeah, Scheibler, uh has a sore right elbow, and in that lineup, yeah, Winker's leading off, Duval batting sixth, playing left field, Hamilton batting eighth. Uh, Hamilton, I think it was on Sunday, batted leadoff, but I think Winker was out of the lineup. So for those who were worried about Hamilton batting so, so deep in the Reds' lineup, with that outfield rotation, especially when Winker's out, I, I think you're going to see some... some more of Billy Hamilton in the leadoff spot. But uh, not clear how serious this injury is for Shebler. So that could uh, have perhaps a negative impact on Billy Hamilton in in terms of uh, Winker being in the lineup more regularly and therefore hogging up the leadoff spot. So for Shebler, Winker, and Hamilton, this is a situation to watch. Good news, apparently, for Michael Conforto, he's traveling to New York and he's eligible to come off the DL on Thursday. Uh, So according to the Newsday, that could be a sign that Conforto is going to uh, rejoin the active roster as soon as Thursday. Joe Musgrove went on the DL earlier on Monday with a muscle strain in his right shoulder. No timetable uh, that I've seen for his return, although it was made retroactive to march 30th so he could be back uh early next week potentially uh very very nice of the pirates to do this about 15 minutes before lineup block this morning had musgrove in one of my rotations uh had some time to to get him out of there uh nelson cruz uh, over the weekend he slipped on a dugout step or no i'm sorry a step going to the clubhouse not the dugout had x-rays that turned out negative uh, he has had an MRI. We are just waiting to see what the results uh, on that are for Nelson Cruz. Ian Kinsler, who started the year questionable, and then he played uh, in one game for the Angels. He went on the DL this weekend, 10-day DL. And Angels, uh, with Kinsler out, uh, Mike Sosha has been using Zach Cozart over at second base and Luis Val- Valbuena at third base. And bear in mind that the Angels are scheduled to face all right-handed starters this week, six of them, Uh, three versus Cleveland, three versus Oakland. I think the only really tough one they're scheduled to face is Corey Kluber. Uh, Mike Clevenger is pretty tough as well, but uh, I don't know if that's necessarily a a lineup changer for you, but um, something to think about there with Luis Valbuena. Uh, Ian Desmond. Is day to day with right knee soreness. Anthony Swarzak uh, Swarzak uh, has an oblique injury, and is scheduled to have an MRI today. Uh, today being Monday, that according to Newsday, so day to day until we hear more on the the status of Anthony Swarzak, and Trevor Richards, uh, the Marlins, uh, they had uh, uh, an op- uh vacancy as their uh, fifth starter. They have finally filled it. Trevor Richards going to debut for the Marlins tonight as their starting pitcher against the Boston Red Sox. He had a very, very impressive spring. So now we uh, finally, now uh, in the fifth day of the season, know the entirety of the Marlins rotation, which I guess puts them a step ahead of the, the Rays. I guess the Rays are still trying to figure that one out. And uh, the Orioles have signed Michael Saunders to a minor league deal. So, um, you know, with Mark Trumbo out, I mean, I don't know if Saunders is going to be you know, ready necessarily to be on the Major League roster. Uh, but with Trumbo out, they've been a little shorthanded. So maybe we see uh, uh, Michael Saunders in the Charm City uh, sooner than later. The Diamondbacks have outrighted uh, Yasmani Tomas to AAA. He uh, was placed on Weavers but cleared. And in an all-Almonte set of transactions— the Royals have uh, DFA'd Miguel Almonte and claimed off of waivers from the Indians, Abraham Almonte. And I, I kind of like this move. And again, I know we're, I'm going a little bit deep with this one, but the Royals uh, do lack some outfield depth. Uh, Ned Yost has not typically been shy about being aggressive with the running game. And Almonte has some speed and also knows how to take a walk. So uh, wouldn't mind seeing him uh, find his way to uh, Kansas City, but I believe he's uh, starting out at uh, AAA Omaha. So that's it for now in terms of uh, news and uh, roster moves and such, but let's uh, just check in here. We do have some lineups just in the last uh, 15 minutes. A few lineups uh, have come in. So uh, let's say we well, got Cubs and Reds, which starts in about 45 minutes. Uh, they are Talked about that situation with the Reds, Jesse Winker leading off. Uh, but again, that's partly because of the the late scratch for Scott Schebler. Otherwise, nothing really unusual there. Uh, White Sox lineup. Yeah, that's pretty much standard fare for them. And the Red Sox lineup is out. And By the way, White Sox facing the Blue Jays and Jaime Garcia. And the Red Sox, as mentioned before, they're going to be uh, facing Trevor Richards in his major league debut. Richards, by the way, a righty, Uh, also being in the NL Park, no DH. So you've got the Red Sox pitcher, Brian Johnson, uh, batting ninth. And uh, so the, uh, of course, you got no Mitch Moreland there. You you figured uh, that would be the case or certainly not him and Hanley Ramirez. So Hanley Ramirez at first base. Uh, for the Red Sox and uh, they've got outfield of Benintendi, uh, Jackie Bradley and Mookie Betts, as one would expect. No J.D. Martinez, however, no J.D. Martinez. So uh, that's the Red Sox lineup configuration against the Marlins. And that's all we got for right now. Of course, weather's been, already been a big deal in terms of uh, the schedule today with the snow outs at Yankee Stadium and uh, since Citizens Bank Park. And looking at the remaining games on the schedule, it looks totally clear. I don't see any even, like, minor chances of precipitation uh, in any of the games today. So uh, set your lineups with impunity. Is that the right way to put that? Anyways, just set the lineups. Don't worry about the weather. All right. Well, uh, a lot of standout performances from this weekend, uh, both uh, hitting and pitching. And I talked last week, uh, you know, after opening day about how, uh, for the most part, the studs, pit, stud pitchers pitch like studs. Uh, this, over the weekend, we had some, you know, number three, number four type starters pitching like aces. So I'm going to talk about a number of those a little bit later on in the show. Uh, the headline, just to, you know, be a spoiler, I guess. Was uh, Jose Barrios' shutout first shutout of the season in the in the big leagues? Three-hit shutout against the Orioles. Rough game all around for them. Uh, Brian Dozier hits a couple of home runs, uh, and Kevin Gosman gave up three home runs. Velocity was down significantly from where it was this time last year. Uh, so a lot to get into there in terms of standout performances, but thought it might be fun to take an early meaningless look at some Statcast cast data, just a couple of leaderboards. I thought this was pretty cool. Cause you know, we've, again, we've seen these standout performances. We saw Matt Davidson crank three homers in a game last week. Uh, you know, we've seen some, some unexpected things. So speaking of Matt Davidson, he is sitting atop a Statcast cast leaderboard after the first series. It's basically the first long weekend of the year. Uh, Highest average exit velocity, and we're going to have to set the minimum very low here since uh, teams have only played three or four games. Uh, so minimum of five batted balls. Davidson has the highest exit velocity in the majors so far, followed by Robinson Cano, Ryan Rua, who's not exactly off to a blazing start, but at least he's, he's making a lot of hard contact. Mitch Haniger, who's off to a great start and talk about him a little bit later on the show. And number five, in terms of average exit velocity, minimum five batted balls, David Peralta. A little bit of a surprising thing to see him there. And also took a look at the lowest average fly ball distance. And two names on this leaderboard, or follower board, if you'd rather call it that, uh, that that I think are pretty interesting. So the player with the lowest average fly ball distance so far, again, minimum five uh, fly balls, Lewis Brinson. Not... Hugely surprised there. But number two is Jose Ramirez. So not hitting with a lot of authority early yeah. on. Then Ozzy Albies, Francisco Cervelli, and number five, Slugger D. Gordon, who usually is in this part of the leaderboard, but uh, cranked his first home run of the season on Sunday. Hit a, had a, I think he had a two-homer game in spring training, if I'm remembering correctly, and I don't know how you could not remember that correctly. So D. Gordon, home run, home run notwithstanding. Very low at fly ball distance. Anyways, I had fun. I hope you had fun with that, too. We're going to have a break, and when we come back, Russell Carlton, author of The Shift, will be joining us, so please don't go anywhere. If you're playing daily
1: fantasy basketball on DraftKings or FanDuel this NBA season, you need to sign up for Daily Roto. Built by a team featuring millionaire maker winners and live final champions, Daily Roto's customizable projections, podcasts, strategy guides, and lineup optimizer will help you compete with the pros in a fraction of the time. Better yet, you can save 10% off using the promo code FNTSY. So go to dailyrodo.com backslash premium to learn more about their product.
0: Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to the Fantasy Baseball Hour. I'm your host, Al Melchior, and uh, very, very excited about this segment because, as I mentioned a little bit earlier on in the show, joining us uh, from baseball prospectus and author of the recently published book, The Shift, Russell Carlton. Russell, thank you so much for taking the time to join joining us today. Thank you for having me, man. <laughs> I've look, been looking forward to this conversation It's a very cool book, The Shift uh, I encourage people uh, earlier in the show to go out and get it And, and read it and check it out um, So before we actually get into uh, you know Some of the, the nitty gritty about the book How exactly did this begin for you as a project? Yeah, I've been kicking
1: around the idea of writing a book for I don't know, eight or nine years And then after the uh, 2016 World Series uh, happened It was November the off season. I was kind of bored and I needed the project. And I figured, well, you know, if not now, when? You know, why, life's too short. Let's go for it. And so I started, you know, laying down some chapters and some outlines. I'm like, okay, this is feeling pretty good. And, you know, just eventually decided to go for it. And, um, you know, it helped me after I was a, I'm a Cleveland Indians fan. I grew up in Cleveland. And so the Indians have lost the 2016 World Series. So it kind of helped me deal with that. But um, I also wanted to write a book that kind of have married together, the numbers that uh, that that I do, I'm a numbers guy. But you know, my hidden secret superpower is that I'm also have a degree in clinical psychology. And so, you know, you get the stereotype of, oh, you know, you're a numbers guy, you you don't think anything of the human element. Well, you know, as a psychologist, we we do the human element. That's what <laughs> we do. So I I wanted to to write something that that uh, that kind of married those two together, and uh, and told it in what I hope is a, a fun, entertaining way.
0: Well, I I absolutely think you succeeded on on all levels there. Uh, But, you know, like I've been saying, I just encourage people to go and and check the book out for themselves. Um, Are you still practicing as a psychotherapist? No, I'm not anymore. I I, I haven't, I'm in research right now. So I I got of that business, but
1: I still have uh, a few things I remember from back in those days.
0: Uh, No, I'm sure you do. I just, you know, I'm thinking about because you said you got the idea around the time of the 2016 World Series. I'm thinking, okay. I know Russell's got a full-time gig. He's writing for, for uh, BP. <laughs> uh, I, how long did it take you to, to, to get the, the manuscript done and, and sent off to, uh, to the publisher?
1: If, 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 there's two ways of answering that because these are topics that I've been writing about at BP for a long time. And so in some sense, I, it, it took me 10 years to write this book. In some sense, it took me six months to write the book. Um, you know, I was able to say, well, okay, I've written about this. So okay, I need to adapt this for a book. But I had to also write some stuff around it, and then I had to update the numbers. Is all this stuff still true? So it probably took me oh, I don't know what seven eight months to actually uh, do the manuscript itself. Um, but uh, it's it's been things that uh, that I've been working on for a number of years. So um, it's it's it, that's kind of a uh, a two uh, two pronged answer, but that's the truth.
0: All right. Well, uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned that this came out of a desire to, to you know, blend together uh, not only the, uh, you know, quantitative insights that we get from sabermetric analysis, but then, like you say, bringing in the, the human element. And and I I want to get to that tension a little bit later on. But in reading the book, I was feeling another tension, and I think that this is something. Uh, you know, not only people who, you know, write for sites like baseball prospectus or, or, you know, fan graphs, but you know, anybody who does fantasy analysis, I think we feel this tension, you know, especially when somebody say on Twitter says, watch the games, (laughs) you (laughs) you address that in the book, you know, and specifically you're, you're kind of making the case against Omar Vizquel, uh, as a hall of famer and talking about his defense and, and how he made spectacular plays. But, um, you know, watching him on TV was a little bit misleading because you wouldn't necessarily see him ranging or failing, you know, to range uh, towards batted balls. Um, and and so, this raises questions for me because I do my best to watch the games. But first of all, you can't yep. watch them all. And frankly, I don't trust myself as a scout. I'm not trained. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't I don't know that I always know what I'm watching. And then there's the limitations of watching on TV, which you brought up. So what are sort of the pitfalls relatively speaking, of watching the game uh, versus, you know, relying on – which, you know, can capture things that we don't see or don't see probably. Yeah, you
1: know, I mean, the Vizquel thing, and it pained me to write that too because I grew up in Cleveland in the 1990s when Vizquel was playing for the Indians. And, I mean, he – you know, growing up, he was, he was a very big part of my childhood. And so it, it kind of pained me to say, well, you know I don't think he's really a Hall of Famer. But, you know, when you think about watching a game on TV and you think of a ground ball to the shortstop, you know, the shortstop is, if, as the ball comes off that, he's got to read that real quick and he's got to say, okay, I need to run over this, you know, this far and I'm going to, uh, you know, I kind of take a couple of steps, uh, more of a walking stride? Do I need to just go all out? Am I going to have to dive? But by the time the camera switches to him, he's already made some of those decisions and started moving. And so you don't get to see where did he start from? How far over did he go? Did he get a good read? Did he get a good jump? Did it take him that extra tenth of a second? And, you know, some of, those, some of those extra tenths of a second are the difference between a ball in his glove or a ball in the outfield. Now, by the time the, the camera's on him, you can start to see, okay, you know, if he made a great diving stop, that's, I mean, it's wonderful to watch. Um, but we find from looking at the numbers, you know, I think 80-something percent of, 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 the, of the play is just getting to it and then, uh, and then you know, setting to throw. Um, and so, you know, this Kel was really good at, you know, when he had the ball in his hand, he was a magician. He made diving stops. He made barehanded grabs. He did all that kind of stuff that looked great on TV. But when we look at, you know, some of the, the things that we now know about uh, uh, his, uh, his range was that it was, I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't bad at He was just kind of merely above average. And it's kind of a, a weird curse to call somebody. It's just, you know, you're just merely above average. Um, but it, it turns out that, you know, when you look at it, I mean, he, he wasn't, he wasn't bad. He was he was an above-average shortstop, and he did that into his 40s, which you should get some credit for. But, you know, that's that's the stuff that we see on TV versus doing it at the game. And as far as trusting your eyes and, and yourself as a scout, you know, I mean, it's once you know to look for it and you, you go to a couple of games and you specifically set out to look for it, I'm just going to watch the shortstop. I'm just going to watch what he does. You eventually start to see that. But you know, most people don't want to watch a game that way. That's that's they want to watch, take in the whole totality of the game and not focus on one player. So I mean, that's that's uh, you, you could tr- you could train yourself to do it. It's just that that's not the way that uh, games are printed on TV. And even if you go to a game, it's not the way people watch it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is you know, even if we aren't limited by the the filter of the, of the camera, uh, yeah. we, we need we have to know what to look for. And I think you know, like you said, there's we have to train ourselves. Um, it, I just it, it made me think about the fact that uh, you know a lot of times you know we're you know criticized or urged you know well you know don't you watch the games? Uh, but you know, I don't know if it's even so much watching the games versus using stats, but using both sets of data collection tools well. Yeah. You, yeah. So, which is a discussion yeah. not really hear that much. Um, yeah, and
1: and, I'm, and that is that is the the challenge that's going on right now in thirty front offices right now.
0: Uh, are there specific things that you're aware of that they're doing to to try to do better? I mean, we, you know, we read a lot, certainly hear a lot about uh, analysts being, you know, hired, uh, but are are there things, you know, being done in terms of, you know, training curriculum to help those? Yeah.
1: yeah, And I mean, and this is some stuff that, you know, when I talk to people kind of off the record, and they talk about how, um, you know, what they'll do is they will have kind of, you know, grand rounds. They'll, they'll have, the, the scouts sit down with the statisticians and they'll kind of trade stuff back and forth. And it's not, you know, it's not contentious. It's just, okay, you have one set of data collection skills. You have another set of data collection skills. We're all on the same team. We want to work together. And, you know, people say on the, on the, the stat side, they'll throw out, you know, an idea that says, well, you know, this number might not be capturing what you think is capturing and, and here's why, and then when you go back and you account for that, well, you know, sure, it turns out that the, the scout was right. And that, and that changes how you measure the uh, whatever it is you're measuring there. And so I've heard those stories come out of, uh, of front offices, and, and, and they're right. And, and then on the flip side of that, scouts are humans. They, they, there are things that are really hard to see with the naked eye. And so uh, it's something that you can really only see with about 10 million lines of data. And once you kind of go, okay, take a look at this, and you show them the numbers, and you say, look, here, here are the numbers. I mean, I'm, I'm not, criticizing I'm just saying here, this, this is what the data set can see that you can't. And you know, the, the, the teams that are, are best positioned are the ones that are hiring people who are fluent in, in at least understanding, or at least functionally uh, fluent in understanding both languages, and and who are willing to listen to an opposing point of view, and to hear that you know maybe your idea wasn't all it's cracked up to be. There's nothing wrong with that. I've been wrong before.
0: I'm a married man, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I can relate to that. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, maybe being wrong, uh, uh, not necessarily you, but, uh, you know, yeah. you make a case in the book about kind of pros and cons of what you call the five six seven model of a rotation. Basically, yeah. the, what has, what you know, become the traditional five-man rotation, but also talking about the four-man rotation. And, and, I mean, I assume you wrote this before the Rays have moved forward with their four-man plan uh, that they're implementing now. Uh, And you you show the the pros and cons of both sides, but kind of come to the conclusion that – you know, all things being equal, the the five-man rotation has more to recommend it. Is there something the, that the Rays understand? you think that maybe the rest of us don't? Because a lot of people are, and I would say I would be too. A lot of people are being very critical of this attempt to go back to uh, you know the old school four-man rotation.
1: See, the Rays really aren't going back to a four-man rotation. They're doing bullpen day, and they're kind of creating a starter out of uh, out of, of out of bullpen pieces, and they're their guys aren't pitching every fourth day they're pitching they're still pitching on on their five uh, their five day rotation um, and, and actually when I, I looked at that and I, the, the race came out with that and I started thinking about it and I wrote a little bit about it at VP um, I um, I found that I'm like oh wow this is this is an interesting take on it because what they're really doing is that you have a group of pitchers who I think are very underutilized and they're guys who probably could hold the, their own for two or three innings and but we consider them failures because they can't hold it for 5 or 6. And they're kind of wasted if you just put them in a one-inning role. And so we don't really have a name for that guy. I mean, you know, there are basically there are guys who go 6 innings and there are guys who go one inning. And that's about it. That's all we have, you know, names for starter and reliever. Mm-hmm. Well, what about those kind of tweener's and could we use what they're good at, you know, going through a lineup once? And, and, and build the team around that. And I think what the Rays are doing is they're saying, okay, let's say that we have these guys who are good at going through the lineup once, you know, maybe, you know, 12, 13 batters or whatever. We could put two of them together, get the same workload as a starter, and because those guys are only going to be throwing, you know, 50 pitches or so, they can probably bounce back and maybe throw a couple innings in relief here or there. And in that case, you know, you start losing the distinction between a starter and a reliever in terms of, you know, who's, you know, actually starting in the first inning and when they're pitching and, you know, is this guy pitching in the seventh inning to do some mop-up just to save the other bullpen arms. But you see how if you, if you gets a little bit more fluid um, that you can staff a rotation like that. And at the same time, you know, one of the things we know is that uh, pitchers are just better the first time they go through the order than they are the second and third time. Part of that's fatigue and part of that's, you know, the batters have had more chances to look at them.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you know, the the logic certainly makes sense. I think the concerns, you know, that I've been reading and hearing have more to do with health. And that's something that, you, you know, you alluded to in your analysis in the book. And you're right, it's not exactly the same thing. But it's, you know, the thing that is similar is that, uh, you know, as you recount in the book, that the old school four-man rotations, that when there wasn't an off day, the teams would often use uh, a spot starter. And in this case, the race spot starter is just, you know, a reliever is going to go maybe three innings. Right. And then another reliever is going to go three on top of him. And, you know,
1: I mean, it's a different way of going through. And I I think that, I mean, you you point out the health issue. And that's the one thing that I don't think anybody really has a a grip on is to, you know, is this a sustainable model for a pitcher to stay healthy? And I I don't, I, I mean, obviously the Rays are going to try it, but. Um, I don't know that we really have the the data to say it, and maybe the Rays are just figuring, well, you know, why not? Let's give this a shot.
0: Yeah, well, it's uh, you know, draw. It's been interesting so far for you know just the the first weekend, and we've already yeah. seen some really good uh, relief performances from Yanni Chirinos and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Yarbrough uh, had I think a four inning stint that that was uh, Ryan Yarborough had a stint that was good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to circle back since we're we're already getting short on time, Russell. Sure. Um, that uh, I've had people on the show uh, like Andy McKay, who's the uh, director of player development for the Mariners. I've had Trevor Mayon, who's a, a meditator. And so, you know, since you are very concerned with, you know, the blending of, uh, you know, the mental side and the human side, as well as the, you know, what we can learn quantitatively, do you think there is something to the fact that? players and organizations who try to instill something like a, maybe a mindfulness practice or something that uh, fosters concentration or self-awareness, do you think that that's, that's a new frontier that can and maybe should be exploited?
1: Oh, absolutely it is. I mean, if you think about, you know, I think that teams are doing a better job at realizing that that there, there is a human element that, that has to be taken care of with the players. In terms of, I mean, you know, you think about a baseball player's job, And yeah, I know they make 10 million and blah, blah, blah. blah. But, you know, it's, it's hard to live out of a suitcase for six months and, you know, you're out there and you're playing a daily game. You don't get weekends. You don't, you know, you're constantly, they talk about the grind. You're constantly playing, you're in meetings, you're practicing, you know, you're doing training work and the ability to relieve some of that stress um, and lack of sleep because you're changing cities every, you know, twice a week. Um, Some of those things, you know, if you could do something to help somebody out uh, and take away some of that stress, you know, you're going to get better results because, well, you know, it, it, even if you get, you know, slightly better results, um, just a little bit for each player, that value can add up pretty quickly. And that's one of the things that we see when we do some of these analyses, that those numbers add up pretty quickly and quicker than you might think. And, you know, can actually be worth, you know, an extra win over the course of a season. And you know, maybe that's the win that pushes you into the playoffs.
0: Yeah, well, uh, you know, I think there's maybe the beginnings, like I said, the hiring of uh, Andy McKay, who uh, puts Mm -hmm. a lot of emphasis on uh, the mental game. Teams hiring uh, mental skills coaches. Seems like that's happening more and more often. Mm -hmm. So uh, it certainly seems like that's, you know, maybe that part of the the game is catching up to, uh, you know, where analytics have gone the previous uh, maybe, I don't know, 10, 10, 15 years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: it's, it is, it is, I think the, the, the new front. I mean, t- teams are building, you know, nap rooms basically. So guys can catch a little extra nap before they go out. And, you know, it's kind of a silly thing, but it, it, it might be the thing that keeps you a little bit fresher for your, you know, plate appearance in the eighth inning. And maybe that's where you get the hit. Maybe that's where you knock the guy in and, you know, it costs very little to redo a nap room. Um, and, it, and if you can get, uh, an extra win out of that—that—that that, that actually has quite a bit of, of value in a baseball context.
0: So uh, we just got—we have to merge the the mental game with the the analytical game, and maybe have naps above replacement or something. <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> we'll, we'll get, that's kind of getting into stalker territory. How how often have you napped? And we'll get—we'll
0: we'll have a wearable on you in 24 hours. <laughs> maybe we don't want to go go there after all. Yeah, unless uh, well, we're on a. Unfortunately, <laughs> we're out of time. So, uh, thank you so much, and uh, folks, do check out the shift. And uh, just uh, really uh, great to have you on the show, Russell. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you so much. All right, so you can find Russell on uh, Twitter at at Pizza Cutter Four Number Four. Anyway, stick around. We will be right back with much more. Back everybody, this is Fancy Baseball Hour. I'm your host Al Melchior, and I did have the time of my life talking with Russell Carlton last night. So hope you enjoyed that too. I know something a little bit different. We have got so much, above, so much going on here in the first few days of the season, but uh, had the opportunity to have him on the show, and uh, you know, just some really cool things that I actually wanted to ask him about. Uh, uh, you know, he had any tips for fancy owners? You know, given his understanding of. Uh, the, the human mind, but uh, maybe we'll save that for another time if uh, if I can get a, back on the show at some point. So uh, I do uh, have a lot to break down from the weekend of games, uh, stayed up performances. So uh, I will get to that just as soon as I get to get you this very quick message here about DailyRoto.com. Dominate DraftKings and FanDuel Major League Baseball Contest this summer. With Daily Roto's MLB projections and optimizer, go to dailyroto.com/premium and save 10% with the promo code FNTSY to use all of the same tools and projections that Millionaire Maker winner Drew Dinkmeyer uses. And the tools don't just work for football. This is the very same site that Drew used for last year's top five $150,000 DraftKings live final finish. So head on over to dailyroto.com/premium. Or you can save 10% with the promo code FNTSY and go and see the results for yourself. Okay, so let's get to some of those, uh, standout performances. There are a lot of them, frankly, some that I probably won't even get to, uh, you know, just for example, Mike Leak had a really good start this weekend, but, um, you know, it, it, it sort of pales in comparison to, to some of the others, so I'm not going to get gonna dwell on that. But as I mentioned a little bit earlier in the show, uh, Jose Barrios tossed the first complete game shutout of the season. He three hit the Orioles, and in that same game, Brian Dozier hit a couple of home runs. Also mentioned Kevin Gosman didn't go so well for him. He only lasted four innings, gave up six runs on seven hits, and three of those hits were homers. Uh, but the really disturbing thing for Gosman, I guess really too, but I think I think the one that's really going to stand out is just a big big drop in velocity for him. Last season, he averaged right around 95 miles an hour on his fastball and that was pretty much all season long. And you know a lot of pitchers right now are down in velocity, but it's misleading because first of all, a lot of them it's it's maybe you know only down by a mile an hour or so and and that's to me not concerning. But also, it takes a lot of pitchers a while to crank up to their their peak velocity. So, they might be at, you know, say 93 now, but by May, you know, could be up to, you know, 94, 95. But uh, Gosman, it's a big drop. Uh, he's uh, averaged 92.3 miles an hour on the fastball. In that start against the Twins. And not only did he average right around 95 last season, he was there at the beginning of the season. So he's basically about three miles an hour off from where he was this time last year. So that is very concerning. Uh, and then the other thing, which could very well be a byproduct of that, is that he only got three ground balls in that start against the Twins. So it's not like he allowed three fly balls and they just all happened to leave the yard. He allowed 14 hit balls. And only three of them were grounders, so that's a pretty horrific ground ball rate, and that works for some people. Uh, in fact, his teammate Andrew Kashner, I've talked about ad nauseum on this show about how he didn't have he didn't have a, a high fly ball rate last year, but he, you know certainly not a low one. But he he was able to limit the damage on it. But pitching uh, in the AL East, pitching half of your games more or less at Camden Yards, that's a dangerous place to play that game of being a fly ball pitcher, and Gosman clearly not getting you know, pop-ups, <laughs> so a lot to be worried about from one start, and I try not to overreact to spring stats, and I was pretty high on Gosman coming into this year, and it, this very well could be a blip on, a, on the radar. Maybe there's some mechanical fix there where he's throwing with better velocity, uh, getting better results, Uh, Maybe you can get better results even without the velocity. But um, this is about as concerning a first start, I think, as as one can have. In uh, better news, somebody that a lot of us were freaking out about in the spring, Shohei Otani. He came out, pitched a pretty nice game, first major league start at Oakland. Didn't look so great in the beginning. Gave up a three-run homer uh, to, to Matt Chapman. That uh, put the Angels behind. He thought, oh, boy, here we go again. But he pretty much spotless after that. So he went six innings, just gave up those three runs off of the Chapman homer, only one walk and six strikeouts. So got to say, pretty nice debut, real debut for Shoei Otani on the mound. I shouldn't say that the, his hitting performances at DH wasn't a real debut. I just mean real as opposed to his pitching and spring training. So very, very encouraging. And Garrett Cole, he was kind of trendy. As you know, as much as an established guy like Eric Cole could be pretty trendy this off season. A lot of people, I think, liked the move to Houston. And I r- recall some people, and I don't, you know, recall exactly who, may have been some analysts in the industry, might may have just been some other fantasy owners. Uh, but speculation that maybe he was going to throw the curveball more—that he's part of that Astros staff where you've got some good curveball pitchers—and pretty much played out that way in Cole's Astros debut, which was. Phenomenal. He went seven innings, uh, just gave up one run to the Texas Rangers on two hits and three walks and struck out 11 batters, had 21 swings and misses. And here's a combination I don't recall seeing very often. 21 swings and misses and 20 called strikes. That's pretty cool. Because if you think about it, if you're getting, I mean, 21 swings and misses is just a pretty insane rate. And that requires getting batters to chase a lot. So to be able to do that and still freeze batters 20 times, which is you know also a very good rate. Uh, that's just an impressive start. And like I said, a very unusual combination, uh, as far as I can recall seeing. And yeah, Cole threw his fastball barely more than half the time, 52% to be exact. And in place of some of the fastballs he had normally thrown as a, as a pirate, he was throwing more sliders and, yes, more curveballs. So it worked. It, it worked very nicely for Garrett Cole. So uh, good, good start for him. Uh, but he's certainly not not alone. He and, and Otani and uh, uh, Burrios, not alone in uh, pitching like an ace this weekend. Rich Hill, great debut against the San Francisco Giants. Uh, great season debut, just to clarify. Six innings, no runs on five hits, three walks, five strikeouts. And if you're going to be nitpicky and say, eh, Rich Hill, I, I I drafted him for the strikeouts. And he got less than one per inning. Well, got a whole bunch of swings and misses. So I, I wouldn't worry too much about that with, uh, with Rich Hill, Trevor Williams, probably not a guy you drafted for the strikeouts. And that's good. Cause he only struck out one Detroit tiger yesterday in the first game of the doubleheader between the tigers and the pirates. Uh, but, he no-hit the Tigers for six whole innings. This is a weird line, though. No hits, five walks, one strikeout. But uh, Williams can can get the ground balls. He can generate some soft contact, so he was able to, to work around those walks. And uh, here's one of the weird stats of the weekend. Williams allowed 14 hit balls. Obviously, if you're only striking at one batter, there's a lot of contact there. He did... Uh, induced 14 hit balls over six innings. Only one of them got pulled. That's really, really low because the typical pull rate uh, would be around 40%. So yeah, you know, a normal start. And, and Williams in the past has been pretty normal, maybe just a slightly above average in terms of avoiding pull balls. And again, pull balls typically uh, uh, go for, you know, for more power, especially if they're in the air, but um, you know, especially if you're getting pulled grounders, that's, that's a nice way to get some easy outs. Uh, but yeah, with a normal rate, he would have gotten, you know, probably six pole balls. He only got one in that one start. Again, fun with small samples, just like with the stack cast stuff I talked about earlier. Can't take it too, <laughs> too seriously with just one start, but it's interesting if he builds on that and he has two or three starts like that, it's like, Trevor hmm, Williams, hard to, hard to pull the ball on him. Uh, Michael Fulmer pitching on the other side for the Tigers and a very encouraging start for him. Only three strikeouts in eight innings, but Fulmer's another guy that you are drafting more for the soft contact and uh, the, the, you know, the racking up the innings than strikeouts. So living up to that and going eight innings deep and only three strikeouts, but also only four hits and two walks, one run allowed over those eight innings. So good pitchers duel in uh, game one of that doubleheader. Dylan Peters made his uh, season debut for the Marlins. Pitched a little bit late last year for them. Put up some really nice minor league numbers. And again, not a big strikeout guy, but uh, somebody who has put up some really good ground ball rates, pitched with good control. And that was pretty much the formula for Peters against the Cubs, uh, who got shut out. and Peters seriously outdueled Jose Quintana. Uh, So Peters finished six innings, no runs, on six hits, and a walk with only two strikeouts. So seeing a little bit of a trend here with Williams, Fulmer and Peters. So, you know, not not guys that are going to blow you away, but uh, can succeed in less conventional fantasy terms. Hector Velasquez, who is really just most likely a fill-in in the Red Sox rotation as fifth starter. Good season debut against the Rays, five and two thirds, one run on five hits and a walk with five strikeouts. And uh, great control from him. He threw 79 pitches, uh, got 58 strikes. I mean, that's a fantastic ratio. Although I, I think the way I set that up was a little bit misleading. Control was okay, but not as good as that strike to ball ratio would suggest because he got swings on 47% of the pitches he threw outside of the strike zone. Now, Norm is like around 30, 31%. <laughs> so uh, that might be a little bit on the raise. For not being very disciplined. All you know could be Velasquez just being very deceptive. So we'll have to see more from him and try to figure out if that was the matchup or the pitcher. Bringing back a little game that I played last season. Is it the matchup or the player? Uh, Ray's probably not the most uh, disciplined hitting lineup. So that one might be at least partly on the matchup. And uh, Jacob Faria, this is kind of a, another weird, interesting line. He only made it four innings, but he did pitch into the fifth. Uh, But he, he had a really rocky beginning to the fifth inning, loaded up the bases. So he had an early exit. So you could look at the score, line score, and just say, well, you know, maybe this is just the Rays being wacky and wanting to get Yanni Chirinos his, his four innings in relief. But it was really more just that Faria needed to get out of the game. But still, overall, not a bad uh uh not a bad line, four innings, four hits, did walk three batters. control was not exactly pristine. uh one run, two strikeouts. Uh, so I mean not the most impressive line. Uh, and he only got four swinging strikes out of 83 pitches. So while he did give up just the one run, you might think, well, there's more bad than good there, but again, we can play is it the matchup or is it the player? And uh, the Red Sox are not, you know, they are one of the, it's a very small sample, of course, but they're, they're one of the teams that have struck out at the lowest rate, and they've got a lineup that would suggest that that trend's going to have some staying power. So might even be a nice little buy low moment for Freya, um, who you know, didn't give up a lot of big hits there, uh, but just had trouble getting the swing and miss. That, you know, I expect that to improve and future starts. Now, as far as some of the big hitting performances go, I mean, here we are with less than five minutes left in the show. I haven't, other than Dozier's two-homer game, I haven't really gotten to the hitters, but a bunch of good hitting performances. Uh, Justin Smoke on Sunday, three for four, with a, a pair of homers, six RBI, and I think he also walked. So got on base four times uh, against the Yankees. So nice game and a nice start to the season for Justin Smoke, who was somebody I thought was getting overdrafted like crazy. Time will tell. If uh, last season was legit for him, I had some some concerns about that. Same deal for Paul DeYoung. I had, in fact, I had both Smoke and DeYoung on my bust list, and both busted out on Sunday uh, with a pair of home runs. So DeYoung's case uh, against the Mets, one against Mats, and um, the, the other's off the reliever. And I'm just afraid to, to pronou- mispronounce it. Jacob uh, Realm. I'm sure I mispronounced it. Anyway, uh, two-homer game for Paul DeYoung, who's off to a good start. Bryce Harper hit two homers uh, at Cincinnati. Nothing shocking there. Adam Eaton stays hot. He had the five-hit game on Saturday, followed that up on Sunday with a two-hit game with a homer. So for that series at Cincinnati, Adam Eaton went 8-for-13, two homers, two doubles, just one strikeout. Wow. Uh, if you dropped it at Adam Eaton... I'm sure you're hoping he's on to something there. He's pulling the ball a lot. He's making a lot of hard contact. Uh, we'll see if he's, you know, this year's version of, um, you know, I don't know, uh, Daniel Murphy, Matt Carpenter. You you pick the guy who just completely, uh, you know, reworked their, their swing and approach. Uh, can't really say that after one series, but he's definitely on the radar now. Edwin Encarnacion had a two-homer game at the Mariners. Mitch Hannigar, I mentioned earlier, off to a very, very good start. He is uh, fourth in my silly leaderboard of highest average exit velocities with a minimum of five hit balls. Uh, but the, he's getting results uh, for sure. He hit his second home run of the season on Sunday against the Indians. He is now on the year five for eight with two homers, two doubles, and he has yet to strike out. Again, only uh, eight at-bats, 11 plate appearances we don't want to go crazy with rate stats after 11 plate appearances, but uh, nothing nothing to pick at there for Mitch Haneker. Very, very nice start for him. And then uh, the weekend review is not completely without a little bit of bullpen intrigue. Felipe Rivero bounced back after a, a poor outing on opening day to get two saves in one day. A save both game one and game two in the doubleheader with the Tigers. So looking very good, uh, Felipe Rivero. And if there's a bullpen situation right now that is worth speculating on, and you know you, you could look around the majors, and there are a bunch of, of closers that have already blown up. But Brad Brock having two outings, one of which a, a, a very bad outing, the second one pitching uh, with, with, the, with the Orioles behind by several runs in the eighth inning. Doesn't seem to bode really well for him given that he was not even the lone closer for the Orioles coming into the season. Buck Showalter said it was basically a committee with him and Darren O'Day and and Michael Givens also uh maybe getting some save chances as well. i put on a, put on a whole bunch of bits for Darren O'Day this weekend. Um and got him for pretty cheap. So I think now is the time to try to strike and and add some saves, get Darren O'Day because uh Owners are much, much more interested in Hunter Strickland right now. Uh, I get it. He doesn't have to split saves, at least for the time being, with anybody else. But there is competition in that bullpen. Mark Millance will be back eventually. So uh, while Strickland, I think, has been a little bit overpriced in fat bidding, O'Day has been pretty cheap. So just bear that in mind. So with that little nugget, that little recommendation, I'm practically out of time here. So uh, join me and Wall Street Matt Modica on this show tomorrow, first Matt Modica Tuesday. Be here. I'll be here, too. Have a great day, everybody. Does your fantasy team suck? Maybe you need us. The Fantasy Sports Radio Network. The only free 24-7 Fantasy Sports Radio Network.